You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I'm doing well. I hope you are as well. And uh, I'm excited to announce this is my one-year anniversary. This will be my 52nd episode, and uh, it's been a good year. You know, I didn't anticipate doing this podcast before it started, of course. I was asked to join the network and be a part of this and kind of lead the habitat management, hunting side of things. And it's been fun. It's been real. And I think it's really important that uh, you know that I appreciate everybody listening to this podcast and and kind of coming into my world. And uh, I think this year I'm going to have a chance to open up and be more in-depth and involved and tactical and explore a little bit more of my thinking through the process. Earlier, we've talked about this being a journey and buying into the process. Everybody has different systems. Well, you listen to you know, somebody on YouTube or another consultant, everybody has their own system. I hunt highly pressured ground, some of the highest pressured ground in the country, period. No question about it. So my philosophy is based upon where I'm located and what I've seen. Um, today, we're going to talk a little bit uh, more about other places, and uh, I got my partner on, Josh Stryker. Josh, if you've listened to previous podcasts, does implementation work. He's a logger by trade. He's a great guy. He's got a lot of knowledge, and he's super successful. Uh, he doesn't listen to me very frequently when it comes to you know some of the tactics, but when his strategy comes into play, he kills. And 
Today we're going to talk about his hunting season and his tactics, and I'm happy that we can kind of get into the details. Josh, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you? Good. All right, man. So, you know, last time we had you on, we were talking about the logging process and kind of the, some of the tactics that we employ and implementation t- techniques, but we're going to talk about your hunting season. We're going to talk about how aggressive you have been, how you found success. You did a DIY hunt out of state, how that went. And then we're going to get into some things that you look at when you're assessing, you know, the terrain and different features across the landscape that make you successful. Let's, uh, so let's kind of, let's talk a little bit at a high level, your hunting season. Um, You were successful this year. So why don't we just kind of hit on the high notes you killed here in New York state and you hunted down in, in Missouri. So why don't you just going to give us a highlight and we'll, we'll kind of break down the hunts a little bit more. Yep, I I was able to harvest one with a bow. Um, had a mishap, but uh, came came together. Had to started start over on another piece of property. Found another buck and was able to get him. And then went to Missouri. I did I didn't kill in Missouri, but I saw two good bucks. Um, so for me for me that's a win. Never that was my first out of state hunt for a whitetail. So that was. That was interesting, but for a, a six-day hunt, I was I was pretty happy to be able to go to new ground and get on a couple bucks, even though I didn't get one on the ground. Um, and then came back to New York and was still couldn't find a good buck, um, so I got access to another chunk of property that never been on, and um, just. Looked at a map. I actually took one walk the day before opening day and just confirmed what I could see on a map. Just made sure the deer were moving where I thought they would be and killed on the second day there. Let's back it up. Let's talk about that first uh, part of bow season, that particular scenario. What happened, how you attacked it, You know where you were. Let's kind of get some of the details there. And then let's talk about your, your actual bow kill because you had a, you said a mishap, but let's kind of get into some of the information there. Yeah. I, um, well, typical for me, busy summer, no cameras got put out till September. And then, um, we worked to that woods and wildlife outdoor show and I won a, a redneck blind mm-hmm. and came back from that. And I checked my cameras Actually, I think I ended up spotting some deer and then um, checked my cameras and had found that there was some good, there was a good buck that was feeding in the clover. And um, my kids have been starting to hunt with me quite a bit and they wanted to go. Of course, it's early season. It's nice. It's easy to take kids with you. So I ended up putting that redneck blind on a, a set of running gears, hay wagon running gears, and set it up in the field. And I think it was, I can't remember if it was the second hunt, could have been the third, I don't remember, but um, I had, had my daughter in the blind with me, and she was getting antsy, she kind of was at the point she had enough, and I was just trying to get, get a few more minutes, I think there was, I don't know, t- maybe 20 or 30 minutes left of daylight, just prime time, and so we were kind of moving around in the blind and I, I looked up out one of the windows and there was a, a young buck 
he he wasn't 40 yards and he could see the shadows and the blind moving and i thought oh boy here we go we're done now and he turned walked the other way started sparring with my target buck and kept going away from us and my target buck and another two and a half year old worked their way right out into the clover and um my daughter got the window open for me and I shot him at 15 yards and I expected him to pile up within a hundred yards. And I, I hit him a little bit high, high and forward, hit him in no man's land. And that deer is still, and still alive, Josh. That, that deer is still alive. I got a picture of him five days later. And, um, of course I did the whole thing. Looked, looked the next day, called a dog in um, everybody kind of said what, what I knew deep down, but didn't want to admit, cause it's been probably a, a decade since I've lost a deer. And, um, yeah, I, I got a picture of him five days later and, um, my neighbor's still getting pictures of him. He sent me a picture of him right yeah. in, in December. He looks great. Yeah. So I'm happy, I'm happy, happy he made it. Did you, so recurve, you were hunting with recurve? Yep, I was. Okay. And I think after that, now I came out and tracked a little bit with you, that deer. And then, uh, you know, we don't live too, too far from one another. And then, um, you know, you and I talked a little bit about equipment. And there was, uh, in your mind, you, you kind of went through this whole contemplation of, you know, am I am I using a recurve? Uh, you know, should I be using a recurve, right? And, and you went through that whole kind of mindfulness and, and just awareness of, you know, is this the right implement? Have I been practicing enough shooting enough and you know i think as much as you shoot and as good as you are on on target you know when you get in the real world scenarios things happen period you know it could be the most calm situation and you focus on the target and your objective and it just doesn't come together you just don't execute you know and it's repetition but it's also you know things happen period you know Things do happen and um i hadn't practiced as much as i normally do this past summer and after that instance, I came back and I was all over the place. I'd have a couple arrows that were right, right where they should be. And, and then, you know, I'd throw one, you know, maybe a foot high or a foot low. And, and I just, it was like, there was a mental block there that I, I couldn't, I couldn't get past. So I ended up, um, deciding that, that I probably shouldn't be hunting with that. And I, I went yeah. back to a compound. It's probably been. I don't know, six or eight years since I've, since I've carried that. So that was a, I had to get that all set back up. Yeah. 20 year old compound that I took a look at for you. Um, yeah. My bow technician skills, I don't know if I'm still there, but you know, Hey, so let's, let's kind of talk a little bit about the, the spot set up specifically, right? You're in your redneck blind. Um, you got a shot at the deer. What, what were they coming to? What was the major draw? This is early season. Clover, um, that field, um, I was actually going to till it up and put hay for the animals up there and I didn't get to it and it came up beautiful in clover and orchard grass. And so, so I ended up leaving it. Certainly a good grazing crop there. Now it's an open area and you can see this area. If you cruise up and down, you have a dead end road that you live on, but if you cruise it up and down that road, most of deer normally, uh, they may they may distribute uh, across that whole area. There's corn adjacent to that, but 
they were coming to that clover heavy. They were cruising through the corn or coming off the hillside. Your neighbor happens to be a client of mine, obviously. Um, but, you know, that that setup over there is ideal. And you just have this major draw. But you've got this road that, that isn't utilized that much, but it could definitely... It could definitely disturb the deer. So it's a risk even having a blind in that location and being able to hunt it, you know, assuming nobody's actually driving up and down that road. I mean, that's an issue that you run into quite a bit, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I live on a dead end road, so there's not much traffic. There is a a little bit of traffic and we got to, I got to do some screening um, this year. It's never really been much of an issue, but, but, I, I did run into some issues this year. Yeah. So we got, we got to work on some screening. Yep. So we're going to do some screening layout. We're going to encapsulate that area. How, how large would you say that's location is roughly about, about two acres. All right. So we got to, we got to encapsulate two areas and compartmentalize it and then get the deer to flow out at one of these bedding areas adjacent. And I think the plan is the blind setup is going to be a little more concealed you're going to have a little more distance or material between vegetation between you and the animals. And I think that'll allow you to get in and out of that blind. But at the same point, you, the tactic you've used pretty consistently is just, I think having somebody come up in a UTV and bust the deer off the field, right? Yeah. I mean, it's easy right here. You know, I wait for dark and usually I just text my wife, say we're ready for a ride and she'll come up in the ranger and which we're up there all the time on four wheelers anyway so it, you know it gets the deer out of the field but they don't they don't spook they don't think much of it sure sure yeah i, I think that set, setup is going to be pretty pretty productive over the next couple of years and a lot of it assumes you know that the crop, crop rotation stays pretty similar uh, near and around your house right that that'll be helpful yeah yep so i think going after a deer early season like that and not messing around is, is probably the best tactic, right? You, you've got a short window to kind of make make a decision. Would you say at that point in time, you're going to be as aggressive as you could? I mean, you move the blind up there on running gear and you have this opportunity. You weren't going to waste any minutes, right? You were going, you were going for the kill as quick as you could, correct? A- absolutely. I, especially early season more than anything. If you have a target buck, coming to a food source during the daylight hours you got to move the for me there's no no second guessing it i mean just my kids wanted to go so blinds the only thing i could do and it's not uncommon for a piece of equipment to be sitting in in the fields here so i can get away with it and so for me it was a it was an easy setup for me um and it worked great the deer didn't bother the deer one bit. Uh, he was 15 yards when I shot him or hit him. And yeah. he never he never gave it a second thought. Yeah, so they get pretty accustomed to not only the farm equipment that's in that area, they get accustomed to the ranger in that area, the noise, even neighbors driving up and down that road that, that live in the houses that are off that particular dead-end road. And so it becomes kind of this very consistent. And it's amazing how consistent people really are. I mean, the only chance of really kind of having a bad stimuli is somebody comes up there and there's constantly they're they're kind of paroling that 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 road of yours and uh, either spotlighting the deer or putting pressure on them, stopping, locating them, glassing them. You know, that's kind of where you get get into trouble. So it's that consistent pressure that doesn't seem to affect them. The minute you start up the vehicle or you the minute you look at them with an odd eye, 
they're gone. And, and that's yep. typically what you're going to experience. So you've got a short window to work, work through there to, to make those decisions. So let's get into your next hunt. So this is a hunt that you killed on. So I want to kind of go through the process. This is lease ground. Yeah, I got on a, a lease this year. Um, just by chance, I kind of gotten invited into it. Um, I think I drove, I might've drove down there a couple times during September, just, just to see what was down there for deer. And, um, one particular buck, he was wide, short tines, not, not much of a three and a half year old, but, but he was, and that was, that was the best buck that I knew of that, that was, um, that could be targeted for me on that property. And, uh, just looking at a map, I'd never hunted it. Um, I had a pretty good idea where this buck was betting and I hunted one, one evening and that confirmed it. It was really just a scout hunt. I set up where I could see everything, um, where the deer would be coming and going from. And, uh, all the bucks came from where I thought they would be, uh, the does, little bit they came out in a different spot but generally speaking where i thought they were and uh, a couple days later so he he came down fed they all did the same thing and went down onto the neighbors which they had been doing so i waited a few days and when i thought he would he would be back in there i went in in the morning um didn't see anything in the morning and I had never been above in the woods, so it, we had gotten some rain, so I decided to do a little still hunting, and I worked my way up around and got above where I thought that they were bedding, and um, I actually rattled him in, and I, 20 yards, he came right out of where I thought he was and was able to get him. So let's talk a little bit more about the tactics. So did you, you basically did some observation to figure out where deer were kind of moving into the field, and then a the result that you're walking back their bedding areas. Was that kind of how you started that hunt? Yeah. Well, I mean, so my scout hunt it was right on the on the field edge, okay. um, not in the woods at all. And they were, I knew they were coming from. So they were coming down to feed, but they were coming from off the top of the hill somewhere. But until you go in there, you don't know for sure. So I was. I, I wanted to find that out, and that's why I decided to scout that morning because um, there's some other bedding areas up further and on top, not, not on our property, on, on, on the neighbor's property. And so these are all things you got to find out somehow. So that, that was a good morning to do it, and I had a feeling he was in there, so it was a scout hunt. And I, I, I've killed a fair amount of deer that way. So explain to me what worked in that scenario. You said it was wet, so you could sneak in quieter time of year. Kind of go into what what allowed that hunt to actually happen. Break it down. I can't remember. It was somewhere, uh, somewhere right around the twenty fifth. So okay. you, you know, you know that things are getting close. The bucks are getting excited uh, at that time of year. Um, of course, luck always plays a little bit into it. But time of year, you know, that would have never happened, you know, first part of October, I, in my opinion. 
um, you, you just got to, and where I killed them was actually where they were coming, coming down off the hill or, or up for that matter, whichever direction. Um, I found all the sign as I was scouting and I was quite a ways from where I, I, I thought that he was bedded. And so I kept working my way down the hill and got to a point where I knew they'd be able to hear me and just set up right on the ground. Um, and he came right up the hill, 20, 20 yard shot. That time of year rattling, I think a lot of people are kind of on the cusp of thinking, is this the right time to rattle or not? What, what do you think? Why do you think that worked at that point in time? Could have been curiosity. He definitely wasn't coming in looking for a fight. Um, so I think it was more out of curiosity. I, there's could have been a bigger deer there or maybe he wasn't an aggressive deer, but he, he didn't come charging in. Uh, he just came in looking to see what was going on and I've rattled on and off for, for years and sometimes it works. Most of the time it doesn't, but I've had it work a few times. I've killed a couple of bucks, a couple of good bucks, rattling them in. So you think it was just curiosity. He wasn't, he didn't approach it. So when he approached you, did he, he didn't try to get downwind. What, what, what was the, what was the circumstance there? Did he come in with another deer? There was, there was, there was a doe that actually came up the hill first. So I'm not really sure um, if they were bedded right together or, or not, but she, she came in first. Um, she was the aggressive one. He was, he was tagging behind and he, he wasn't looking for a fight. She was the one that was really, really looking for it. And he, he was hanging back. He was working his way up the hill as she did, but she was the one that was really looking to see what was going on. So it sounds like it's potentially in, in that circumstance. And this is paying attention to the details is this buck was shadowing her potentially for breeding opportunities. The doe was coming in either to get this buck off her back or looking for the next suitor. I mean, that's typically what happens that time of year. I've seen a lot of breeding chasing at that point in time, 25th, 26th in our particular area. Very consistent. It's kind of the kickoff. I call it, you know, it's the start of Super Bowl. And then for me, like, I'll just throw my strategy in this is I won't get aggressive at all with rattling. I would do maybe light rattling, either early season, some rattling during that time of year. And then two or three days later, when scrape season starts to really just bust out, that's when I'm, I'm starting to rattle a little bit more frequently. But it's only for a short window. At least that's been my strategy over the years. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, same. Um, okay. That the the rattling when I say I rattled them in, it wasn't wasn't like I was giving them an all out brawl. I, it was just a you know a couple light little tickles of the antler. I did that two or three times. You know, just a couple little tickles. Maybe wait five or ten seconds and give it a little bit more, and that that was it. It wasn't aggressive. So, anything else that's important from this hunt? I think. I like the fact that you had an observation, you went in, you chose a, a select day where you could sneak into an area, you're catching these deer on transition, you kind of, I guess, built your own little opportunity into this by maybe choosing to rattle, and then as a result, you know, not sure why the deer kind of ended up in that location, but maybe out of curiosity. Is there anything else that was really important in that that you think's uh, 
consideration, maybe with terrain or any other features that kind of drew those deer to that location specifically? Terrain for sure, where, okay. where they were bedded and then where they were traveling up through. Um, there, there was a couple of bedding areas, but in particular where they were traveling, there was a, it goes from a little bit of a knoll down into a low spot. Of course, the whole thing is going uphill. It's just the terrain's very knolly. And then back up onto a little bit of a knoll that they travel up on. So that they get they get the wind benefit and the sight benefit, and there's bedding areas on both sides of them. And where were you in relationship to where they entered that area? Where was your hunting location? I was just above them. Okay. I, I set up above, just above the low spot where it, where it goes from a little bit of a ridge and then it disappears down into a low spot and there's ridges on both sides and then they come back up onto the ridge. It's just, it's the way the, the land lays in that particular area. It just worked out that way. Interesting. Okay. All right. Do you want to go to your next hunt and talk a little bit about, you know, DII in Missouri and what happened there? Um, that was good. That was fun. I had a buddy of mine call me. I is beginning to middle of October. Asked me if I wanted to go it was just on a whim. Uh, we went the first week of November Um, he picked me up Halloween night. I did all the trick or treating with the kids, got them to bed and we hit the road at, uh, nine or 10 o'clock at night and just did what everybody does. Looked at maps, you know, there, there, you can find good information in in a few places. I, I like the hunting public guys. They give a lot. Um, Steve Shirk, he's great for big woods, uh, tips. And where we were going, there was a lot of, there, there, there was some smaller parcels, but there was, there was some big woods areas too. And so I spent a lot of time on the drive out, just looking at maps. Um, we scouted two different areas, um, on the drive in and had one particular area we wanted to check out. It was a big area and, um, there was a lot of guys there. Lots of guys, a lot of hunting pressure. I was surprised. Um, and all of them were, you know, looking for the same thing. If you're, if you're going to go hunt off of a map, odds are somebody else is going to be there too. So what I found was there were some areas that weren't obvious on a map. They, they were close, but not obvious. And, and those were the better spots that I found. Um, the guy I went with, he, he killed one, he killed a decent buck out there. Uh, I saw two, but didn't, didn't harvest anything and it was hot. The deer just weren't moving. It was 75, 80 degrees almost every day. So that, that made it rough, but it, it was, it was a good trip. Learned, learned quite a bit. Let's dig into what you learned. So you mentioned Steve, who's on this podcast and the guys from the hunting public are not on this podcast, but I think a lot of people are familiar with them. And we're talking about a specific area that you're blind. You're going in blind. You've got some intel based on the maps. You've got access points. What would be the obvious examples of what people would go for? And then what would be the non-obvious, which probably you had to focus on as a result of everybody else, because you said there was hunting pressure. What, what worked alternatively for you? Because I think 
there's been more familiarity over the years where people are studying terrain. They're being more conscientious of how to hunt areas. And those obvious spots are getting picked off. And now you're having to hunt areas that people are not going to be accustomed to, or you're looking for maybe minute, you know, individual features that that make the hunting that much better. Could you maybe kind of explain that strategy a little bit? And I don't know all the specifics of your hunt and what you learned, but I'm interested to hear more. Yeah. um, I mean, there was two areas that we found that were in, in the big woods area. There was a lot of oaks, not a lot of them producing, but a lot of oaks um, in all ridges, ridges and ravines, just one ridge after another. And they all, pretty much look the same and looking at a map I couldn't find any distinguished bedding areas feeding areas they did have agricultural but and and those are obvious you know everybody thinks that the deer are going in there to feed so the first night we got there we're thinking all right well the deer are feeding on the egg fields right so we go down there found a spot, sat to hunt, and there was, you know, I, I don't know how many other guys, lots. Um, so that was pretty much, check that right off the list, right off the bat. Um, so we kind of went back, uh, found one area that we thought might be good. Well, he found one, I found another one. We went two separate directions. Um, where he went, there was a creek that came down. So the ridges were running perpendicular with this one stream that was marked on the map and along the stream there was a bench on either side that wasn't very big and it was thick flat and thick great bedding areas and that's where he killed um there was one other pinch point that we found you could see on a map but it was it was very big huge um and when you get in there you could find there, there was really two spots that would be good on it and nobody had been back in there. It's, it wasn't easy to get to. And then where I was, there was one distinct uh, pinch point that looked fantastic on a map. And I got down there and of course there was guys, I didn't realize they had mowed paths that go a mile off the road. And this pinch point was right on one of these mowed paths. Um, there had already been guys hunting it. Um, and so I found it, it wasn't a pinch point. It was just a little bit of a low area that was denser. And that's where I found the buck sign cruising through there. And so I set up, I was probably two or 300 yards from the actual pinch point that I wanted to hunt on the map and found there was a ridge coming down and, um, a pond on the other side that kind of, it was a little bit difficult to see on a map. If you knew it was there, you'd see it. But if you were just going th- scrolling through a map, it wouldn't look obvious. And that's where I ended up. That's where I saw one of the bucks. Um, so I guess the only thing I could say is, you know, if, if it's obvious on a map, more than likely there's at least one other guy that's hunting there when you're there. So mm-hmm. you, you can get close looking at a map, but what I found is you're going to have to be finding something else other than something obvious on a map. Can you go back to your partner's kill? He had a chance. You said you were talking about a thick area off a bench. Can you kind of describe maybe how he accessed that? Was That was in the lower third, or can you kind of describe that in a little more detail? 
so that was an area um it was actually i'm trying to think how he found it i don't really know what led him to that spot but he showed me on a map and it really there was a bunch of ridges coming down it wasn't ex- it didn't turn out to be exactly what he thought it was it looked like there was a, some ridges coming down and there was a pinch point on the bottom of them so it was down off of a hill it was in a low area and um but probably two-thirds of so there was all these ridges on a big hill i mean all these ridges you're, you're gaining elevation all the time and so he was down off of that but still I would say two thirds of the way up the main part of the hill. And he where actually where he killed was again, probably a couple hundred yards from where he thought he would have been. So really you don't really know what you're going to find until you get in there. In my opinion. When you saw the deer that, that you said was mature or you know maybe in your wheelhouse, what do you think permitted that deer to be in that area when the obvious spot was some distance away that, other people are capitalizing. Do you think the pressure pushed that deer there or was it slightly better than you, you thought once you got in there? I was right in his bedroom. Okay. I was, I was right there, right where he was bedding. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that then. So in some of these areas, obviously vegetation dictates interest. And of course, um, intrusion is another piece of this. So you need to be aggressive. So you have a limited window, Right, and, and you see this a lot on a lot of these YouTube channels is these people being very aggressive. You've got a short window to, to execute. So to me, that's like a stressor. And I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not in your scenario. I don't know what you, know, you were thinking at the time. You know, what was your mental state? And, and you were going for the throat, I'm assuming. Absolutely. Um, I always do. When the, when, when the, when the time is right, that, that's my tactic. I don't especially on an on a out of state hunt something like that where your time is limited you go you go right for the throat and either i, I always say either you're going to kill them or you're going to bust them out of there and if if you bust them out of there then then you go to the next spot but if you have 6 days to hunt and you're on an out of state hunt if you're if you spend the thir- first 3 days just scouting you might not even have an opportunity if you're only leaving yourself with 2 or 3 days to actually hunt so in my opinion, it, you know, I'd walk in, I'll hunt off the ground. I do it here. I'll do it on a hunt. I'll do it anywhere. Um, so I'll carry a stool right in my backpack. And my first day or two, I'll be scouting while I'm hunting. I'll have ideas where I want to be and I'll get in there and I'll, whether I need to be in a tree or on the ground, I'll just, I'll hunt there right there for the evening. I like that you push the limits because I think there's no real option otherwise. And particularly when you have a window like that, it's not like you have all the time in the world, but this time of year, you were in November, right? You were there that first, first, first week in November. Okay. So there's going to be a lot of movement normally uh, minus the, you know, the hunting pressure contingent on, you know, the weather conditions, et cetera. You know, what deer make, what makes deer move at that point is breeding, right? They're in the interest of breeding. So you've got to push the limits and figure out where deer are going to be. I think in these like terrain settings where you've got a lot of terrain and then vegetation, sometimes that vegetation is the only form of cover for the deer to kind of co-locate. But then on the flip side of it, like I think if you had a large bumper crop of, you know, acorns, particularly that time of year that were still relevant. Now, most of those white whites are eaten. I'm not sure what was down there specifically, 
you know, the Reds aren't even touched that time of year, at least up here. They kind of save for late season when they need that carb content. What did you think, like, really vegetation-wise? I mean, it's I'm thinking it was pretty darn thick. What did you think was really kind of the, the draw? Do you think that was it? Yeah, just, just being thick. I mean, <clears throat> there there was a lot of oaks, like I said, but not a lot of them were producing. Um, I, I found a couple of ridges that had some big old growth oaks that were producing. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of the deer were feeding in the egg fields, but they weren't going to be there anywhere near daylight hours. There, there was actually a, there was a small bedding area right next to where we were camped. Um, of course, there's a bunch of other guys there too. And the guy I went with, after he killed his buck, he was driving around right before dark. And right about dark, those deer had stepped out of that bedding area. So those deer were in there before daylight. You know, when, when everybody was getting up, getting ready to go, those deer were moving into that bedding area and they weren't coming back out until dark. Yeah, it shows. It shows when there's pressure what they're going to do, right? They're gonna they're gonna sit tight. I, I found that pretty interesting. Yeah, I do as well. You know, one thing you just brought to mind, and I'm thinking about this on a property that I'm looking at right now. I'm, I'm working design still for properties. I've already started clients for this next year. I considered like December next year, and um, thinking about a stream area where I'm doing some work and we're trying to increase the stem density. Usually there's a lot of mineral content, the ground's pretty rich, and picking species in there that will stabilize the bank of that stream, but also provide the ideal cover scenario. And you know, I'm thinking about kind of that layout right now and what would be ideal in those areas. And it baffles me even thinking about getting in this area to hunt specifically and thinking about like these short draws, flat areas, whether there's water in them or not, and then putting yourself in those locations and not getting busted. It's really like hand-to-hand combat. That's what it sounds like for me. So uh, I appreciate your question in that because I'm not sure a lot of people, when I think of draws, I usually try to hunt ends. And when I'm designing a property, I'll draw them to an end to make it more huntable. Usually you're working off one wing condition or the other, maybe on terrain features, you're working with a thermal benefit. You know, you know what I'm saying? I just, I'm kind of thinking about how that relates to a design aspect that, that I would consider when I'm, I'm putting in place. Kind of I some mean, of these I, tools. ideally you're right. That's where you would want to be. And that's, that's where a lot of the obvious spots on a map are that you would want to be. The problem is the hunting pressure. Yeah. You know, the, for me, there had already been guys there. So in, immediately I, I don't want to set up there. If there's already been guys there, I don't know how long they've been there. You know, I don't know how, how bad they boogered it up. I'd rather just go find something else. Yeah, nobody wants anybody's sloppy seconds, so that's that's understandable. Let me let, let's bump ahead. Let's talk about your your actual your gun kill if you don't mind. Um, unless you want to talk more about your your hunt in Missouri. No, I mean that's that's pretty much it. Good, good. I think there's a lot of detail. Be, if you're going on a trip, just be be aggressive. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. All right, let's talk about your gun kill. Uh, I know you killed a, a good 10-pointer, and then, you know, this is this is another good buck. So why don't we break down that story? All right. I mean, I, I so I get back from Missouri. Uh, so that would be, you know, beginning of the second week. So we got gun season the third week. Um, still no bucks around for me, you know, on my typical hunting spots. So I would gotten access to... Another area that 
I, I mean, I've been by there, but I've never, I've never hunted. I've never given it a whole lot of thought. And so I, I figured I'd give it a try. Um, threw a camera up, had a couple decent bucks. So I went in actually the day before opening day and took a quick walk to confirm what I saw on a map. I, I had found a, a bench where I thought they'd be betting, um, in one area and there was a bench that came across and two other potential bedding areas, um, coming off the other end. So I sat on the one end of it, uh, saw one buck and one small buck and another decent buck. I didn't get a good look at them the first day. So I, I went right back there the second day, um, and, and, and got that, that 10 pointer. What made that hunt work for you, you think? I knew there were deer there, and it's all timing. You know, that that probably, that would not be a spot that I would sit earlier in the season because it's it's just, uh, you could hunt it a couple times, and if it was early season, you might be able to get away with hunting it twice, and and that spot would be done. You're, you're, you're walking right over the deer, pretty much to, to be able to hunt that spot. And so it's a very limited accessible or the access creates this confusion or I guess we'll say chaos related to the property. But what do you think worked for the gun hunt specifically that made, you know, a deer infiltrate or uh, immigrate in that area? What, what was the, what was the, uh, was it hunting pressure? What, what created that you think? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of hunting pressure around there. Um, a lot of hunting pressure around and the time of year, I mean, being the rut, you never know what's going to happen. So between the rut and the hunting pressure that, I mean, I, that would be a spot I'd go back to, um, in the years to come. I know the deer. So the deer I saw the first day had gotten shot at, uh, I don't know by who, I don't know if it was shot. I don't, I don't know anything about it. Um, but just so for me, those, the benches and the bedding areas, you know, they're deer there. Uh, it's just a matter of catching them in there and the deer density is not great in that area to begin with. So it's just kind of a sit and wait game. If you can find a spot like that and again, be aggressive. I, I knew I was going to be walking right over where the deer are traveling. But if you're going to hunt it, that's where you have to be. Yeah. Yep. I think, too, the takeaway here is you've got options, and having options is critical. I think uh, there's not enough said about that, and we've been talking about getting more options, both of us, to make sure that, you know, we have more opportunities. It's tough, right? It's a tough area to hunt. You know, a three-and-a-half-year-old buck around these areas is really kind of the top-end deer. Very few people are passing up two-and-a-half-year-olds, and if you're passing up a three-and-a-half-year-old, multiple three and a half year old um i think you're uh you're on something and uh i think you've told me that plenty of times and uh i appreciate your candidness with me but you know trying to get to that next level when you know you're looking at a kind of small cohort of three and a half year old bucks there may be one maybe two in a localized area you know maybe over a few square miles um, and hoping one of those deer make it to the next age class as a four-year-old or even five-year-old, 
that is a feat beyond feat. And, uh, you know, we've talked before, you know, that may happen uh, not again in a lifetime or, you know, every 10 years or so. So you may be hunting a ghost. And uh, I think that's something that you and I have relayed back and forth. And obviously, if you listen to this podcast, I've been pretty open with everybody here. We've had a good client season, by the way, Josh. I don't know how much we've talked about this. You know, we had a client kill a 155-inch deer, a client that you got to go back on and do some work. Um, we've had tons of good client kills this year, and I've been really pleased with that. It's nice. Uh, we had a client kill uh, two days ago and, um, you know, in a different state, but I've just been really just pleased with the, the volume and uh, the number of people that are clients that are killing. We had a client kill this year right off the bat. First day went in, went after the deer, killed the deer, but multiple d- discussions and, and, and stories like that. And I've just, you know, I feel like what the work that we're doing is really getting somewhere. It's people are starting to see the advantage of this. And it's like, what I've come to realize, and I don't know how you feel about this, and I know I'm changing topics a little bit, I feel like the involvement and the attention to detail with both you and I when we're doing layout and setup and the amount of detail I give them on the consulting visit just sets them up. I mean, there's no question in my mind that level of detail is a game changer. And the system that we have in play, whether it's you know how to design you know food source layout or you know utilizing resources, natural resources to create that consumptive value, um, putting percentage, thinking about percentage of woody browse across the property, percentage of thermal cover, like all these different features and facets that go into this design philosophy just changes the whole atmosphere for them. It's like a totally different landscape. And so the reason I bring that up is because not only are they successful is I'm actually pushing those same limits and we're coming up with new concepts this year of how to lay out benches and bedding areas, stuff that I've just started to talk to you about. I think that would be game changers across the industry of how to look at it, these specific setups and optimize them even further than we're, we're getting at. So you and I have got some time together to think more about that on some of our client properties. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. And I don't know if you had any comments or thoughts on any of that. No, I mean, just we're always trying to just figure out where the deer naturally want to be. And if you can make that better, that's that's really what you're looking for and then you know like you said setting people up that's that's the goal you know create the habitat for the deer and and set it up in a way that it's it's huntable and you know that that was the hardest part about being out of state is the huntability you know if you're looking at thousands of acres that essentially all look about the same you got you got to break all that down and if you can do the, do that for clients, break it down for them and give them a spot to hunt. It, it, that's, that's what makes it a game changer. It does. And so here's my recommendation. Anybody out there right now, either your season is done or it's nearing its end, get out there and start scouting. If you have snow, lucky you, we have snow here up in uh, central New York, start scouting your deer, start putting the story together, start taking that data collection you had all season, understand why they're using an area, put a story to that. Alternatively, start getting more hunting spots. Start giving yourself more opportunities. You know, empower yourself to have more planning for the future. And that's that's the biggest thing that I have takeaways this year. If you have a large chunk or multiple places to hunt and those places are not meeting your goals and objectives and you can't implement change, it's an opportunity to start looking at buying land and investing in your future, your future hunting. We both have young kids coming up. Those kids are going to hopefully hunt. 
My son will be hunting next year with a bow, maybe a gun. We'll see. And Josh, your kids are a little bit younger, but you're you're introducing them and you're giving them opportunities. Yet, you know, we know that properties come and go. It's it's about some of these like long term things that we're seeking out. And if you could buy twenty or thirty acres, you know, and live the dream, um, I, th- I think that's very very much worth it. On, on the fifteen acres, Josh, that you've improved, you've had a ton of su- success over the years. Uh, more so recently after some changes on it, some habitat improvement. But I think you've seen you've seen the benefits yourself. Yeah, yeah, lots of benefits. We made some changes here, and some of that changes came with the neighbors. Um, you know, the neighbors are are helping out. I shouldn't say helping out. Um, the, there was a couple of years where they were they had shot quite a few deer, and uh, it really hurt the it, it hurt pretty bad. There was there was a couple of years where um, I didn't see a three and a half at all on camera in person. Um, and, and so they, they've been shooting fewer bucks. There's, there's fewer guys hunting it. I know, uh, I actually got, I had a really good uh, conversation with one of the guys that hunts the neighbors. Uh, I'd never spoke with them before. It turned into a, a, a good, a really good thing. You know, it used to be not a lot of information was shared between us and, and this guy, um, I, I actually showed him the buck that, that I had hit and it was just like a light switch. You know, he, he went through his pictures. He had that buck on camera too. And it really just turned into a good relationship or it has been so far. Um, which, which was great. Actually, I, I was homesick with, with one of the sick kids one day and I texted him if he was hunting cause I heard a shot that I assumed was on him and, um, it wasn't. And actually he stopped and dropped off a bottle of Jack. He just appreciated you know, me saying something and, and that bottle of Jack, that, that meant a lot to me. That's just, you know, he appreciated that. So, and I appreciated that he appreciated it. So, you know, maybe, maybe some of these neighbors that you have, you, know, you always want to go in conservative cause you never know, but you know, you might have more to gain than just a deer hanging on your wall. If, if you start sharing some information. Yeah, I think that's a good way to end that. And I appreciate you being on. So it's been a year, bud. And uh, I think uh, this season we'll have you on more. We're going to talk more through some of the details. We've got projects coming up. We've got a cutting effort in January. Uh, We've got a few more throughout the season. You've got a couple turnkey. There's just a lot going on with, you know, my business and, and obviously your involvement. So I appreciate you, appreciate all you do, and appreciate you coming on telling your story today. Anything else you want to end with or are you good? No, I think I'm I'm pretty good. Great, man. Uh, hunting's supposed to be fun. Should keep it that way. Yeah, keep it simple, keep it fun. All right. Yep. All right, bud. Well, we'll talk soon, and uh, thanks. We'll see you again. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.